0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we can approach you, that we can speak to you, that you hear us. Mystery, we trust it. We pray that you bless our time. Um, And... In a spiritual way, that to understand these uh, these truths that just keep giving uh, to us and have given through the centuries uh, that, that point us to our hope um, in the resurrection and eternity with You, and fellowship of the saints. Uh, these are great and marvelous things that have uh, that have um, changed the meaning of our lives. And we pray uh, that we can be faithful stewards of these things in Christ's name. Amen. amen. So, um, miracles. Yes, we we, we did. I'm going to do a kind of a, a, a overview of where we were. I'm going to perform a miracle. Then I'm going to come back. No, I'm kidding. I'm going to. Yes, I've been practicing. I've been practicing all week. Um, actually, that that was probably horribly blasphemous at some level. But anyway. I don't know what edge I skirted to, but whatever it is, um, I, I, where, we, where we are in the series, and we got one more after this to kind of close it out, but it, I just want to re- kind of recap where we were and then do a kind of biblical dive, biblical theological dive into the question of this idea of what miracles are as signs of the kingdom, as a presence, as, as a kind of new order of things as signifying a new order of things, a new reality that has come into being uh, in the promises of Christ, in Christ. And then next week, I, I thought we'd take it to the next, let's let's fill it out then. Uh, what does it mean that the kingdom has come? What is it, past tense, like established or existing now, not pa- past and present tense? You know, what does it mean that the kingdom is? The apostolic era and the witness to these miracles, and then kind of round it off, with well, what do we do with them today? You know, or, or uh, what, how do we, in light of this this sort of biblical theology, how do we try to pr- process them in, in our own world um, and such? Uh, processing them in our own world has been difficult, and that's part of what led to this series. Uh, any, anybody that, that exists in the modern world knows there's a tension uh, over whether these things are possible in a scientific age you know, that, that has the modern age eroded uh, the possibility of these things as, as a residual uh, superstition of, of an ancient order of things. Um, we'll, we'll say something about that just a moment as, as by, by way of a, a prelude. Um, I, I just, again, for rehearsal, I think the way we get at this question is, is, is a foundational, it's a presuppositional matter because it has to do with the way you answer the question about God First. There are first order questions involved before you get to the question of a miracle, right? Or what it is. How do you understand God, Jesus? And I think tied and connected to that, just the authority, the nature of authority of Scripture in general. Uh, how, how do you how do you get at those things will determine how you're going to answer or even begin to ask a question about miracles. As for Um, Well, let me just one more on that issue. I I think that also has to do then with the way we discuss it, say, within the church context or the believing context, the the, matter of faith. Or if we were to just walk outside of the church and begin to talk to somebody. I mean, you're, you're going to have a very different conversation, perhaps, is my point, because of the governing questions involved. Uh, on the question of what a miracle is and what it means and that relationship to what we call nature or the natural order of things. A lot of words in the past that have pointed to miracles. We're going to see some of those in Scripture today uh, because the Bible itself, the ancient words in Greek, ergon, teras, dunamis, simeon, signs and works and wonders and powers. Uh, We're going to see these words, especially the word works over and over again, my works. What do they do? What, what, what were they intended, you know, uh, to do? The Greek words uh, translate from all four of these sources to give us some indication of what a miracle is in Scripture. Um, as far as the Latin goes, uh, miraculum was, is the root word. Something that evokes wonder, amazement. Interestingly enough, it's also our root word for mirror. When we look at ourselves, <laughs> so there's a narcissistic quality to our wonder and amazement. Uh, so, you know, the wonder of 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 seeing the other, and or which is really ourselves. Um, so, a little uh, word survey there. Uh, as a governing scripture, uh, we're going to look at several passages uh, today. Bear with me. Um, I think John 20 is uh, incredibly helpful. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are this is toward the end of the, of the gospel, which are not written in this book, but the ones that are written are there so you may believe. There's an imperative that you may believe, in in, in Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. The miracles are not simply uh, looking in a mirror. They're not simply a wonderment uh, uh, or an amazement. They they point to something else. It's very important, I think. It's a very critical consideration. Because the Bible is not the only book that has these miraculous or strange things in them, especially in the ancient world. There are other sources: Babylonian, Egyptian, etc. So the Bible's use of these things uh, is very specific. It's very intentional, and its intentionality is not the wonder of the magic or the sorcery of it, which it's not. It's what does it signify? What is it pointing to? Why do, why were these things necessary? The skepticism, however, that has emerged is not new, it's not new. uh, skeptic- uh, uh last, last session I talked about the modern developments and uh, why miracles increasingly in a scientific age beginning around the 17th century-ish uh, come under increasing scrutiny as being problematic with the rise of modern science. And uh, three of these positions uh, tend to give some indication of that, the pantheist, the deist, and the materialist. I should add, though, that uh, modernity is not the first um, period of time to question the miracles of Scripture. Actually, if you read the Bible, <laughs> you'll find they were divisive. A lot of people saw them and probably just went and ate and went home. Um, a lot of people saw them and thought he was doing something, um, trickery, a, a kind of deception. First century A.D., we had a figure named Celsus. We don't know much about him, but he wrote a treatise. He really had a problem with the virgin birth, like really had a problem <laughs> with it, uh, and the miracles, and uh, spent a great deal of ink uh, criticizing them and Christians who believed in it. Porphyry, another figure from the second century, Uh, wrote about how these things weren't to be trusted. Uh, Even had an emperor, Justinian the Apostate. Christians probably filled in the latter part later, but Justinian the Apostate, uh, who uh, also questioned the miracles. So it's not simply a modern thing in the scientific age. It's an age-old thing. There's something divisive, something winnowing, winnowing, separating, um, harvesting about these things, pulling things apart when we talk about them. And these different positions, all, the the, the three, oh, I apologize. Uh, these three um, all uh, give some indication. The pantheist position, for example, would say, I again, that's um, my wife. I don't know who that is, uh, dinging in there. But um, let's see what um, the uh, all right, uh, the uh, the pantheist position uh, overemphasizes, for example, uh, the possibility of the imminence of God in uh, nature, for example, as God is part of the created or cosmic order, part of it, not separate or distinct or creator. Okay. Um, the deist position takes a little bit of an opposite, uh, a lot of an opposite, the transcendence, whatever it is, the great mind, the cosmic glue, it's out there somewhere, okay? And of course, the materialist position uh, takes the position that there is, uh, there is no supra-natural, that material matter is all we have, and, it, and that's what governs. All of reality. Uh, And then, of course, the theist position, which we're working out of, could argue differently from all of these things, um, which we're we're going to. What's the difference in deist and theist? Yeah. So the deist position um, is it's a position that if there is a thing like a God, that God is inaccessible to us. There's no personalism to that God. Uh, There is no speaking or reaching into history or nature. Whatever it is, cosmic force, uh, the the big bang, the unmoved mover, (laughs) whatever's out there is inaccessible to us by our nature and does not intervene in our nature or history. The theist position could take, takes the opposite. That theism says God is personal and can work within nature and history. Uh, Christianity, of course, holds this, but so do Judaism and Islam. So, um, but w- we have distinctions, right? Does that help? Is that okay? Yeah. Any other? Yes, ma'am. Could it be that in Judaism, it's more like the God is just here to serve us? Kind of it could be. It could be. Um, Classic analogy is God the watchmaker or the, the mechanical um, picture of the universe. God has built it, set it in motion, and now it moves according to a pattern of laws uh, that it are no longer interfered with. So um, it's not a denial of God, but it's certainly a rejection of the possibility of God acting in nature in any miraculous way. Or history. Um, but there is a kind of order to things with us under deism. Um, I think all three of these have very powerful manifestations in the modern world and have affected the way we talk about Scripture, God and miracles and Christ. I mean I, I think uh, I did a little bit of this last time and I Uh, I'm not gonna bore us with all these old dead guys, but uh, there's a kind of lineage, there's a kind of lineage of thinkers, a genealogy (laughs) of thinkers who presented some profound questions uh, in the modern world, and as I just said, the ancient world as well, that really are are arguments for these positions. Um, And and so what we see is a, a kind of faith shift, Is, you know, what is reality? What is, how do we talk about it? Where is our faith? Is it in the material order of things? Is that all there is? Is there some godlike thing out there, but it's being found in the development of history itself? Um, Progress, is that a kind of, you know, reason? What is it exactly? All of these have taken forms in the modern world. I think this being one of the most powerful. And where we left off uh, last time is uh, the church, you know, had to answer these things, or so the church and has in history approached these questions and tried to answer them uh, and tried to make sense of them. And in the, in the modern world, uh, the church has become very divided on these issues because what what we see in just a kind of real. Brief sort of history of the West is uh, in uh, in the 19th century. Uh, the European Church, especially the German churches, others as well, uh, began to answer. Well, but you know, we want to retain the tr- we want to retain the ethical and moral reasoning of Christianity. I mean, Jesus clearly was a good guy, and clearly there's good teaching here. But can, it, can we retain that and hold on to that at the same time and, and kind of skirt around this stuff like, I don't know, walking on water <laughs> or axe heads floating <laughs> or um, the virgin birth even. By the 20th century in America, that's a contested question. In other words, are these miracles residual of an earlier framework of of narrating things we now understand through science. But does Christianity still offer us something? So there's a severing that takes place over the last couple of hundred years. And I said that severing really is a division that we see today in the way we approach miracles between liberal Protestantism in the main... And what we might call sort of historical Orthodox confessional Protestantism—it's been called fundamentalism, it's been called evangelicalism, it's been called all kinds of things. But just let's say historical Nicene Orthodoxy, because that's what we're going to call it today. Um, I'll take any of these labels—I don't care. But um, or that. Right. Yeah, but way you're way right. Way the, the, no, that's right. Conserve, in the sense of conserving right. the truths of Scripture and confession. That's exactly right. We, the, the conserving tradition of Protestantism. That's right. Against I like this. taking it back to historical nice saying, just <laughs> okay. the platform we last all stood together on. All of these things, I think, say something different than this, than what we might see in the development and this is a complicated question because there are nuances within this but for our topic the issue is um, has the scientific rationalist approach to reality um, triumphed such that we no longer really can talk about Christianity in terms of miracles but we have to talk about it in terms of other things like ethics or love. We find other or social efforts. In other words, we find other ways to place the meaning of Christianity apart from the scandal of it, which is a God who is both the creator of nature but outside of it at the same, who has acted in nature and has acted as creator. There's a scandal to that in the modern mind that certain uh, approaches to Christianity have negotiated in ways the conserving tradition does not. Do you know if that's the same case in the Jewish tradition? Yes, it is. Okay, there's liberal Judaism. Yes, Judaism Judaism went through a very similar pattern in the 19th century. Okay. um, Very much so. Following Spinoza, and yes. Jonah was in the whale. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. No, Judaism. You're very. That's right. Judaism went through a really similar. It's modernity, right? It's the modern world pressing on these these ancient teachings. Very interesting. All right, so that that's kind. And again, without picking, that's our situation. I do like as a historian that I remember in the second century. They were arguing about this also, you know, we're not, there's nothing new, right? I mean, uh, Kelsus goes on and on about how there is no way a God would want to come to earth and have sex with a Jewish girl in Israel. There's no way. And he even goes so far to say she couldn't have even been attractive. I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean I, I'm not, I, well, I'm sorry, I just telling not telling you what he says, you know, I mean, it's not, it, well, it, Kelsus had his boxing gloves on, so nevertheless, you know. Um, I mean, it, my point is there was an, there's been an aggression to these topics, a division and an aggression all along. All right. With that in mind, um, let me see. I want to urge us from here into next week that miracles serve several purposes, and these uh, five are the most important throughout Scripture. These are the most important throughout Scripture, okay? And we'll see in a moment, including the Old Testament. Including the Old Testament. So going back to what I said originally, uh, or I'm sorry, what I said a few moments ago. Uh, it's, we're not talking about magic. We're not talking about um, illusion. We're not talking about uh, wizardry, Harry Potter kind of stuff, when we talk about miracles which can evoke a kind of amazement. We've all seen a magic trick and been amazed, right? That's not it. That's not what the Bible, how the Bible talks about this intervention into nature. In fact, what's amazing about Scripture is Scripture doesn't, I mean, miracles do not contravene nature in Scripture. There's nothing contravene. Nature isn't, isn't destroyed with a miracle. You walk on water, your feet get wet. You drink wine that's been turned from water you're going to probably get a buzz you know then the natural order continues even in the miraculous the question is and this is what I hope to see by the end of almost every point in scripture when a miracle is performed the text is clear this is what it was meant to indicate something outside of itself not look at me I am a wizard, or I'm a magician. And matter of fact, Christ is very careful, as are the apostles we'll see next week, to say, what you've seen here is not the real thing. (laughs) You've only seen an indication of what the real thing is, the new order that has been inaugurated. I think that's very important when we think about this. So there's an authenticating part of this to who God's messengers are, I come in word, but I come in deed as well. It's a confirmation of the message. A demonstration of sovereignty and power. A demonstration of the presence of God's kingdom, the new order, the recreation, right? And then, of course, promotion, belief, and faith. If you go and read articles and, and dig through a lot of scholarship on this you also you find great stuff and some really horrible stuff and one of the horrible thing, it was to help people miracles are there to help people make them better okay but a doctor can do that right a good uh, uh you know a good a good grandma with chicken soup can do that right i mean this is something else this is of a different order when we talk about the, con- the, uh, the, inner, the 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 co- the the connection between nature and supernature and the same God that controls that continuum. And so the question we're after is, well, what does it authenticate? What is the message? And we know, you know, the answers here, but it's rhetorical. What is God's power? What is His sovereignty? How? how why do we need to see these things to know the kingdom? Okay. Any? Uh, I'll pause there just for a second and a lot. <laughs> I want to sip my coffee. <laughs> the question that came up in my mind was, so you're talking about, in Are
1: you talking about miracles in the Bible? you
0: talking about miracles in the Bible. Okay, you're not talking about miracles in my personal life. That's what I want to talk about next week. How do we discuss those things? Because I, I think that uh, any discussions of what we would see as a miracle okay. in our lives has to be governed first by what Scripture says a miracle is. That our authority is not ourselves first. Yeah, that's where I want to take us next week, is what is this miracle in ourselves, in our experience? If, if we were to take all the miracles of the Bible and put them on a timeline from creation to the New Testament... What you're going to find is huge chunks of time where it's just silent. There's nothing about a miracle or anything. And, matter of fact, it's a lot of begotting. Uh, and there's a lot of narration that goes on that seems pretty uh, just everyday stuff without you know the supernatural uh, being involved, uh, the supra natural, right? Uh, we see that very specific time periods in biblical history sort of escalate or um, um, accelerate this, uh, this, uh, this presence of miracles. I, I dug through some of these. I think we can take creation as a starting point. That is a miracle. That is something that cannot be done. I mean, and, and I'm going to leave it there because I'm getting some heady stuff. But, um, but if, if creation's our starting point and we move through, we see that, we see some miracles in the judgment of sin, the time of Noah, the confusion of tongues, and the Tower of Babel. Babel. Um, before that, there's this thing called the translation of Enoch. This, you know, I mean, uh, we you know, why does he not die? I'm gonna leave Enoch alone for a moment, but we got we have these things that happen, uh, and then we have this. We don't even really know when this was, <laughs> to be honest. And by the way, these are approximations. People argue over these dates. but just to give an example of the gaps I'm talking about, you have the time of Abraham. All right, we get some miracles happening in the time of Abraham. Sarah conceives, and it's kind of a big one, you know, she's a hundred and one. So. Um, then we have this long gap between the Abrahamic covenant. To the time of moses and then we see this deliverance the, this the deliverance from egypt and the conquest of canaan a lot of miracles in there i was going to try to that's right and uh and turn to one so a couple in just a minute about this question of authority right then you get this other long gap i mean look at all that those are centuries those aren't weeks right it's not like i'm, re- I'm expecting a miracle. Wow, look in the Bible. That's a long expectation before you see the next, you know, sort of what we call this, 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 uh, this intervention in nature to show God's power and authority. Uh, the time of the kings, Elijah and Elisha, a series of miracles and the prophets. A few happen in there. And then finally the time of Daniel, and then we get closer to the Hellenistic world of Christ just to give you an idea that when you read scripture is you know the actual what we're actually calling miracles it, it it happens intermittently okay and then of course at the time of Christ we get this this constellation of miracles and as we get closer to the arrival of God's kingdom an important I think starting point for this all right Let's talk about the Old Testament. Let's talk about the the Old Testament just for a moment here. Given that outline I just showed and these these sort of epics of miracles, these these intermittent sort of moments of miracles, one thing we find in the Old Testament is that miracles seem to occur primarily in connection with a prominent leader such as Moses, uh, Elijah, or Elisha. We see a collection or constellation or a a, um, a conflagration of miracles around these people. Why? And I think it, it's, it's, it we'll turn and see in Scripture that the pattern is one to demonstrate that these are not, these men are not speaking on their own authority. Again, pointing to something else, not the wonderment of it. Or the amazement of it they're called to speak on God's authority so for example Moses uh, is given signs there's that word signs Um, they won't believe me he says or listen to my voice they will say the Lord did not appear to you the Lord says what is that in your hand he says a staff and he says the lord throw it on the ground so he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and moses ran from it smartly <laughs> but the lord said to moses put out your hand catch it by the tail so he puts it out he catches it and it becomes a staff that they may believe the lord not that they clap at the trick but that they may believe the Lord, the ones who see, may believe. The God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a sign unto the covenant. This is a sign unto the promise. Lord says, put uh, your hand in your cloak. He puts it in his cloak. He takes out, and remember, it's leprous. It's white like snow. Put it back in your cloak. Puts it back in his cloak, and it's restored. Ah, neat trick, <laughs> Right? If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and it will become blood on the dry ground. The series of signs that are given unto Moses, who clearly seems a little terrified that this is happening and not quite sure what's happening, is done that belief may be, uh, confirmed and enhanced Moses' authority be established and the covenant be um, re, uh, um, um, known, be, be made known through the sign. These are my people. So, um, we have a similar thing in in Kings, in the book of Kings, um, with the um, Elijah uh, and the um, the widow's son. Okay, when he when he's raised. Uh, from the dead. Um, let's see if I can. The son becomes ill, and his illness is so severe there was no breath left in him. The woman rightly says, What have you got against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance. My sin. And they cause the death of my son. Elijah says, "Give me your son." And he takes him from her arms, he carries her to the upper chamber, lays him on the bed. He stretches himself over the child three times. The Lord listens to the voice of Elijah. Life comes back into the child. Elijah says to the widow, see, your son lives. And what does the woman say? Oh, thank you. Or, wow, she says, no. Or, what a nice trick. You're a great wizard. No. Now I know you are a man of God and that the word of God is in your mouth. Uh, Her son has just been raised from the dead. What is confirmed is that God's power and truth and authority are reliable. And Elijah is witness to that. So this Old Testament pattern is important. We have another example in 2 Kings um, of this question of establishing uh, power and authority. Uh, uh, 2 Kings one ten. Um, this is the, the on the in front of the uh, the idols of Baal Baal. Uh, Baal, the ancient uh, pagan god. Um, um, Elijah says, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. He doesn't say, if I am a worker of wonders, if I am a person of great power, if I have the force or whatever. He says, if I am a man of God uh, and the fire comes down and consumes his 50. And Um, he is then recognized as a man of God. The signs, the works, some are there not for the wonderment of it, but for a confirmation of something more powerful. It It is God's intervention in space and time and nature to confirm his purposes for his people. Okay? Great. This Old Testament pattern, I, I want to urge us, is continued in the New Testament. And this is it's this Old Testament pattern that Christ inherits and actually embodies and enacts. He takes this pattern that we see back here, this, the purposes of the miracles, and he orients them in himself and the new inaugurated order, the new inauguration of the new creation that the miracles are intended to serve. Maybe I found some art. So, in this regard, what, when we turn to the New Testament and we begin to explore uh, these, these passages, these descriptions, of the miracles. We see three things that I want to finish on. First, we see that miracles authenticate the character of Jesus and his relationship to the Father. Um, I'll, I'll read a couple of these, I, but just to, um, just to, just to reinforce, um, let's look at 536 in the Gospel of John. Um, This is Christ um, speaking. Um, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Just think about that. <laughs> this is God as man speaking. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things to you that uh, you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in that light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works. There's that word, Aragon. Works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works, miracles I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Okay? There is no conversation or discussion about what you're seeing is uh, to amaze you about my own ability or my character or my cleverness, my craft. It is to confirm that the Father has sent me. And let's, let's look at, at John 10 as well. Uh, and, and here, if you, if you listen, not only is it a confirmation or an authentication of who Christ is, you see the divisiveness that it causes, the winnowing that I was talking about. The Jews, uh, they say to him, if you're a Christ, tell us plainly. And he says to them, I told you, And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, the works, bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they will follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them from my hand. They pick up a stone to stone him, and he says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? It is not for the good work we are going to stone you, but for the blasphemy. It's a lot there. That's a lot to unpack. But the key there is that word, works, which he's referring to the miracles. I have shown you many things. You have not believed, but my sheep have seen and believed. The point is, the miracles demonstrate this authority of Christ in the same pattern as the Old Testament demonstrates the authority of God's messengers. They are not simply done to wonder and amaze. Two other quick points. Miracles demonstrate Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. If you read the passage about the healing of the paralytic, for example, um, Luke 5, and I'll I'll press this into next week as well. So all three of these passages are the pericopes that cover the healing of the paralytic, right? Um, and he forgives his sins after the healing. The scribes and Pharisees get pretty exercised, not about, oh, he just healed that man. It's that he forgave his sins. Jesus perceives their thoughts. He says, why do you... Question in your hearts, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise and walk, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Immediately the the paralytic rose, picked up his bed, he goes home, glorifying God. Amazement seizes them all and they glorify God. We have seen extraordinary things today the miracle does what? In each one of these passages, it's that the authority is forgiveness. It is transformational. It is the reordering of human nature itself to its proper end. So the miracle doesn't stand alone as amazement. It stands as a sign of what Christ's authority enables him to do and what he's going to accomplish by the cross. And then Finally, and I'll I'll stop here. Um, miracles demonstrate that the kingdom has come. The kingdom of God is is here, is with us. Uh, since I'm in Luke, I'm just going to look at Luke 7, uh, 18 to 23. Um, the disciples... Uh, they report all these signs, these things that he's raising of the dead and such, and the healings. The men had come to him. They said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases, miracles, plagues, and evil spirits. And many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Miracles. And then how does Jesus answer them? So at the same time they asked this question, Apparently in the same framework, all these healings are taking place. He says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The the point is, and we can look at these passages all in more detail, a new order has been inaugurated. The miracle itself is not intended as a form of enchantment. It's intended as a sign, a signifier, um, a waypoint, an arrow. Look at this. My authority, my relationship to God, and the transformation of the order of creation that is taking place that is inaugurated A new form of being the kingdom of God itself your 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 healing is spiritual it is soulful it is eternal it is not just this physical thing and in that I am following the pattern of the prophets that have come before me and um and and we can then go back to looking when we look at these new testament miracles we can go back each time and say how do they do this and check, check my words and check Scripture because at every point where it happens, there is an interpretation. What does this mean? It means the kingdom is at here. It means God is with us. So I'll leave it with that today. But. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.